Uh, tonight, we are going to be in First um, Samuel. We're going to pick up in chapter 23. We're currently walking through the life of David, and this is, this is effectively the portion of David's life when he's on the lamb, when he's running from Saul. And one of the really great things about um, covering uh, the Bible at the pace in which we are, three or four chapters a week, is you see the big picture uh, of, of what's going on. You know, we've probably heard the different incidents and accounts along the way, but um, especially in Hebrew narrative, there's a, um, a characteristic to, that, to it that we often miss, um, the way that the stories are put together and told in the big picture, what, uh, what story is told next uh, or, or prior to a particular account. And so, um, as we pick up tonight, in chapter 23, um, it's worth keeping in mind kind of where things are. We're in this ambiguous territory where Saul is on the throne, but his right to rule has been taken. And David has been anointed to rule, but is not yet on the throne. And that's interesting because as we get into chapter uh, 23 tonight, effectively we start to see how the king of Israel was supposed to work. We start to see uh, a theocracy in action. Theocracy meaning God is on the throne. Now sometimes some have suggested that uh, Israel was a theocracy before there were kings, but with the institution of kings we become a monarchy and that that was somehow a negative thing. But as we've talked about before, God has since Genesis, since Adam and Eve, been looking for people to rule and reign for him. It's written right into the job description of what it means to be a human being. Let us make humankind in our image and let them have dominion over the beasts of the field and over the fish of the sea and the birds in the air. Um, humankind was made to rule. Uh, you can see that, we won't turn there tonight, but you can see that if you look at Psalm 8. That kind of is the destiny of mankind. And so throughout the history the Bible tells, um, we see these figures stepping up who lead for God, who rule for God, people like Moses, people like David. And ultimately this trajectory is fulfilled and culminates in Jesus as king. Uh, as, as he rules, uh, you know, at the end of the great tribulation, at the end of the book of Revelation, um, that's where everything is headed. And so David is in some ways a fresh prototype of this. It'd be just as appropriate to call him another Adam, a new Adam, just like we did Noah, just like we did Abraham, just like we did Moses. Um, but it'd also be appropriate to call him the pre-Jesus, the before Jesus. Uh, in fact, Son of David becomes one of the primary names of expectation that Israel uses for the Messiah. So notice here how this theocracy thing works, what it looks like to be a king for the God of Israel. Verse 1, now they told David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kela and are robbing the threshing floors. Okay, now if you've been with us long enough, if you're familiar with what happens before the book of Samuel and the book of Judges, this is tremendously familiar, okay? What happens throughout the book of Judges is that the enemies attack, sometimes, like in, um, in the account of Gideon, uh, during 
the harvest, and then God raises up a deliverer, someone to fight for Israel. And the language here is the exact same that's repeated in the book of Judges. Okay. They told so-and-so. They told David. Sometimes it's a prophet. Sometimes it's an angel of the Lord. Sometimes it's the people. Um, but someone came and they said, David, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Cala and are robbing the threshing floors. And then notice this in verse 2. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? That Um, relationship there, that juxtaposition of basically going before God in prayer and asking what is supposed to be done, that's the DNA of a theocracy. That's the way it's supposed to work. David's not just to rule for the sake of Israel, but to rule on behalf of God. And so he's constantly receiving God's input. Now, we saw this with Saul, but it was always broken. And so we would see Saul, uh, and he's supposed to wait for Samuel, who's kind of God's mouthpiece during the reign of Saul, um, and the armies are closing in, and his, his own army is getting nervous, and they're starting to walk away, and he just takes the reign and offers the sacrifice and screws everything up. Or on another occasion, um, when Jonathan is having a victory while Saul's just sitting under a tree, and he hears the commotion he, he's curious what's going on, so he inquires of the Lord. He knows the right steps to go through, but as the priest is going through the process, he just stops him and says, never mind, I don't have time for this, let's go fight. But we watch consistently throughout David's rule and reign um, this pattern that he asks, should I go, should I not go? Um, and we see God speaks to David. The Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Kelah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Cala against the armies of the Philistines? Okay, um, remember here that David's men are not trained soldiers at this point. These are not the armies of Israel, even the men of Israel. We were told just a few chapters ago uh, that these are people who were in tremendous debt, uh, who, were, who were despairing. These were uh, kind of a ragtag tag bunch of people who have just attached themselves to David. And so David knows what it's like to lead an army. He knows what it's like to fight for God. They're not so sure about this whole thing, and they say, I don't know, David, there's only... You know, there's, there's only a couple hundred of us. Does this, does this really make any sense? And one of the things that strikes me here is in verse 4, David inquired of the Lord again. There's a, there's a humility to that. David doesn't pull rank. He doesn't demand an authority. It's not like the days of Saul when Saul foolishly makes a vow and his armies has to stand against him and say, no, we won't follow your leadership. This is crazy. Uh, instead, he just inquires again. He goes, okay, you want to hear from the Lord? Let's do it again. Verse four, they inquired of the Lord again and the Lord answered him, arise, go down to Caleb for I will give the Philistines into your hands. Once again, that's the language of the judges. I will give them into your hands. When you fight for God, it's more accurate to say that God fights for you. Verse five, and David and his men went to Caleb and they fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Kayla. Okay. Now verse 6, when Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Kayla, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. And remember here, Abiathar is the last remaining member of the, of the priesthood. 
All of those who were living in Nob uh, have been wiped out, and Abiathar is the only one who's escaped, and he has both the qualifications as the living high priest, as well as the priestly garments, okay? So we can assume in the verses leading up to this that, that, um, that David's inquiring of the Lord involved the prophet Gad, who's traveling with him right now. But now that Abiathar comes up, um, this becomes the normal means, the laid out way uh, of hearing from the Lord, what the book of Leviticus refers to as the Urim and the Thummim, which are these, well, we don't know what they are, um, but they're kept right in the ephod, in the breastplate of the high priest. And so now he has that uh, at his disposal. Verse um, 7, now it was told to Saul that David had come to Cala. Now, notice this. Do you hear the similarity in the language there? Chapter 23, verse 1 said, now they told David, behold, the Philistines are attacking. And now we set the same thing up with Saul. It's like, um, it's like in T-ball, and one team's been up to bat and the poles, ball's put on the tee, and now we see the same ball on the same tee for Samuel, but notice how he just completely responds in a different way. And so it was told that Saul, to Saul that David had come down to Cala, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. He doesn't consult God, he assumes he already knows God's will, and conveniently, God's will sounds a lot like Saul's will, okay? Saul's will is that David would be taken out. And he goes, ah, here is the opportunity that I've been waiting for. And what he means here when he says he's gone into a city with bars and gates, it means that there are very minor, just a few ways out of this city. So what can Saul do it? He can surround it and just wait it out. Okay? He can just force David uh, to deal with him by surrounding the city. Now, verse 9, we flip back to David. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then said David, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant, has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Cala to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Cala surrender me into his hands? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And so notice this. Here we don't even see David operating on intel, on hearsay. Even the information he has, he takes before the Lord. He lays it out in front of him and he says, is this really what's going to happen, Lord? One of the things we see that's significant in David's life, it's much more apparent in the Psalms, but it's also clear in the books of First and Second Samuel, is that he has a very close and intimate relationship with God. He has a robust prayer life. And that's true in these official ways, using the high priest and consulting the Lord as part of the office of king, but it's also true woven throughout of his, uh, all of his life as half of the Psalms that we have are written by David. Um, in fact, we'll encounter at least one tonight that was written by David during the events that we'll cover. And so he goes uh, and he inquires of the Lord and the Lord said he will come down, verse 12, and David said, Will the men of Cala surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. Notice there that one of the good things about consulting the Lord is that he both knows the plans of David's enemies and he knows the hearts of the people of the village, right? That's the second question he has is, are they going to stand or are they going to fail me? Are they going to stand with me or are they going to hand me over? Um, and, and he has full 
insight, full intelligence here. So, verse 13, David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Kayla, and they went wherever they could go. Okay. So, notice there's no real plan or strategy. It's just not here. That's the plan. That's what it means. They went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Kayla, he gave up the expedition. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hands. Okay, and so here we see that David seeks the Lord, and Saul seeks David. But the Lord's not having it. Now notice he's in the wilderness of Ziph. Just for context, this is going to come up over and over again tonight. Everywhere David is, is basically in the land of Judah. And that makes sense, okay? Because David needs to know the lay of the land. He needs to know the terrain. He's thinking of where are safe places to hide. And we'll see that one of his primary tactics is to keep moving. Okay? But he's from the land of Judah. This is his home territory. But the other tension here is that means the people we encounter, the ones who are going to be so terrible to David, uh, the rich man Nabal, uh, the people of Ziph, uh, they're brethren. They're part of David's tribe. Uh, and it creates a tension in this book. It would make sense if there was resistance from other tribes against David, but these, these are David's family. This is his extended family in this land that's going to be standing against him. Now notice verse 15. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh, and he strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. I shall stand at your side. I will be your second in command. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. I think it's very likely that last week when David encountered Jonathan and they kind of um, used this archery signal and wept together and had this final conversation, it's very likely that I said that was the last time they meet each other. And that was inaccurate. This is the last time they meet each other. Um, but it's hard to keep track of because they have such a simple pattern. Okay. Jonathan encourages David, and then they renew their promises to one another. They make a covenant. Um, so it can be hard to keep track of. Um, but I think you could make a significant study of Jonathan as an ideal friend. And one of the things we see that he does here is he, he knows, even though he hasn't seen David in months, maybe even years, he knows what David is feeling right now. And he goes and he finds him to encourage him. And so notice again what he says in verse 17. He said to him, do not fear. It, for me, it's a little bit strange to think of David being afraid, right? He's, he's one of the most valiant heroes in Israel's history. But Jonathan knows that doesn't eradicate or deny the reality of fear. And so he goes and he encourages him. Um, he says, don't be afraid. And then he reminds him of God's promises. You shall be king over Israel. That's not, that's not Jonathan's best guess. That's not where Jonathan is, you know, um, putting his best bet. Those are the words of Samuel. Those are the words of God. He's been anointed. Jonathan reminds him of God's promises. And then he also says, Saul knows just as well as I do that this is the case. And we'll see that that's true. In fact, that's a major theme that we're going to encounter tonight, um, is that not only, not only is Saul aware of God's plan, but he's actually going to give it his blessing. 
in his um, mixed message one way than the other way. Um, and so Jonathan encourages him, but notice what happens in verse 19. Now the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh and on the hill of Hashalah, which is south of Jeshimon? Okay, so they give directions. They say, Hey, Saul, we thought you'd like to know that David's hiding in our territory. He's where we are. And remember, once again, this is the land of Judah. These are uh, Judahites. If I remember right, and this is just a guess, you can do your own research. It's always good to do research. I think they're actually from the line of Caleb, um, which so will Nabal be. Um, the Ziphites are from the line of Caleb, who was given land in Judah. But nonetheless, the reason Caleb took land in Judah was because there were close ties there. And so they come and they, they spill the beans. Verse 20, now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. Okay, he says, you come and we'll give him over. Verse 21, and Saul said, may you be blessed by the Lord, for you've had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure, know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. And so here he knows that David is a hard catch. And so he says, just one more time, go back, confirm where he is, and let me know. Verse 23, see therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he's in the land, I will search him out among the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of, ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arba to the south of Jeshimon, and Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David uh, in the wilderness of Maon. This is like a classic cinematic montage, right? Where we see David in a place, and then just as Saul and his men get there, it's been abandoned. They're just one step ahead, constantly one step ahead. Uh, so verse uh, 26 Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul, and Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. Now, in the Hebrew here, there's something even more interesting happening. The idea here, uh, and we're pretty sure we know where this mountain is, don't think like a big mountain like Mount Rainier. Think of a, a very um, well-recognizable rock outcropping, Okay. Um, and so David is on one side of it, and Saul is on the other, and he smartly sends his men around both sides. That's what it says in the Hebrew. It's a, it's a pincer attack. He's going to try and surround him in any direction he can go in. Okay, but notice what happens. They're closing in, and then a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. Okay. Uh, on the other side of this rock is the Mediterranean. Okay. He's, he's, he's stuck. It's the equivalent. You know how, um, and this happens in so many movies, um, but you know how someone is hiding from the bad guy and they're on the run and they get to that place where it's not really a hiding place at all. They're just out of options. They're behind the couch or you know, behind a pillar in the yard, and they're getting closer and closer, and then there's the sound in the distance, and they turn around and walk the other way. That's this, okay? That's what happens here. This is supposed to be the end for David, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, the Philistines attack. 
And so Saul gets a message, and he has to go home and deal with this other mess. And so David gets away. Okay. Now, um, we have David's perspective on this whole account here, um, beginning with the Ziphites in Psalm 54, and it's worth reading. I want you to notice how David sees what happens here. Psalm 54 is a short one. And the ascription at the top tells us that it was written at this time. In fact, it quotes the words of 1 Samuel. It says, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a masculine of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? And then notice the psalm. O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. That's the Ziphites. They do not set, set God before themselves. Okay? So whatever their agenda was, it has nothing to do with the Lord. In fact, we can assume probably it's got a good deal of self-interest. Right? Everybody wants to be the hero who's on Saul's good side, probably because it's bad to be on, ba on Saul's bad side. Um, but notice verse 4, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return evil to my enemies, and your faithfulness put an end to them. With a free will offering I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. And so he looks at this and he knows that it's not circumstantial. He knows that it's not coincidental. He knows that God has sovereignly utilized the Philistines to deliver David, to save him from his enemies. Now this is another significant trait of David uh, is that he probably more than anyone in the Bible uh, embodies what the scriptures call us to when it says that we're not to take vengeance, because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. One of the phrases that's repeated throughout David's psalms is vindicate me. Okay, David has a lot of enemies, not just Saul, but as we see, the Ziphites. Um, there's, there's many, there's, uh, you know, his, his son Absalom later. There's so many things that happens in David's life, um, but when he cries out, vindicate me, uh, we need to recognize how often that means that he stands defenseless. A call to vindicate or for God to defend you or to save you or to um, handle your enemies cannot coexist with your own doing of those things. Okay? And David learns throughout his life this reality of God as deliverer and he relies upon his helper, his salvation. And so from here, he moves into the strongholds of En Gedi. Um, now, En Gedi is a great place to hide out because it's full of caves and it's also full of, I don't know how to pluralize, oasises, oasi, uh, but it's full of water. And so his men can be supported even though they're in the wilderness where nothing is um, in this place very well. So chapter 24, verse one, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Once again, we're not told here who told them, but these are just generic, anonymous enemies of David. Behold, he's hiding in En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men. Okay, that's five times as many men as David has. 
3,000 chosen men means that they're the upper echelon of his fighting force, okay? Out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. Now, let's take a step back here and recognize that Saul as ruling king is summoning the armies of Israel to take out his enemies. But in this case, his enemy is an Israelite, okay? One who actually used to be a high-ranking general in his army and has done literally nothing wrong. He's so off track. He is no longer, in, a, in the most real sense, no longer ruling for God at all. The only reason he goes to fight the Philistines is because he has to. And then as soon as he's done, he's back on his, uh, back on his personal little mission here. And so verse 3, he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, Notice the next sentence here. Now, David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Okay? Get the irony here. If you get the chance to visit En Gedi, if you come with me this summer, we'll stop uh, at a little wildlife reserve in En Gedi and we'll walk and maybe we'll see some of these caves. There are a lot of them. Okay? Saul is overcome by the need to relieve himself right next to a cave and he's sitting there in the dark relieving himself surrounded by his enemy, unbeknownst to him. Okay? Uh, there is irony here, but also, and this is a strange thing to say, but there's the same sovereignty we saw in the last chapter. There David is just, just hiding behind the pillar, you know, and the, the, the monster is stalking right there, and then hears a sound and goes the other way, and God was in charge. And here, uh, here even at the level of Saul's bowel movements, God is acting to set this all up, okay? Um, Saul is convinced that he has what it takes to take out David, but he has made God his enemy. And so here, you know, just put yourself in David's shoes and the shoes of David's men right now. What does this look like? I mean, it's probably funny, but also it's a tremendous opportunity, okay? Um, Saul is in no place to defend himself. He has no sense of this being hostile territory. He's completely alone, as one is wont to be when they're relieving themselves, right? Uh, they have the upper hand in every way. It almost, it almost looks like a package that God has just delivered to David that says, to David with love, right? Here it is. This is the opportunity. No more running, David. Fulfill your destiny. Here is your chance. And actually, David's men agree, Notice here, they're sitting in the innermost part of the caves, verse 4. The men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hands, and you shall do to him as you, it seems good to you. And so notice they say two things here. Broadly they say, Oh, this is of the Lord. God is in this. He's delivered the enemy. But they also say, This is a fulfillment of the word that was given to you. And we don't know anything about this word. Okay, Maybe... Maybe it's a false promise. Maybe it's a false prophecy. Maybe it's just a saying that he had heard. Or maybe it's a real one and it's wrongly applied to Saul. But either way here, either way here, that's not how the story goes. This isn't just a gift tied up with a bow. And so David arose stealthily and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now, that's a relatively uh, impressive stealth act, okay? You got 600 men plus one in a cave, 
And then this guy comes in to relieve himself, and I assume he crawls up on his belly close enough to cut Saul's garment. And remember, he doesn't have uh, sewing shears. That's what I found myself thinking about today. What does it look like to cut a piece off a garment with a weapon? I really have no clue. Uh, But it does not sound like something that's easy to do quietly and stealthfully. But why does he do that? Why doesn't he just take his life? Some suggest here um, that although David never had plans to take Saul's life, he did want to make a point. In fact, it's interesting uh, that Saul has had royal prophetic garment malfunctions before. Okay, just a few chapters ago, uh, when Samuel comes to Saul because he has failed to kill King Agag and the spoils of war, he explains, that's it. You're no longer king. God is going to replace you with one of your neighbors who is better than you. And, and Saul effectively begs for a second chance and Samuel says, no, this is over, I'm leaving. And as he turns to leave, Saul drops down and he grabs Samuel's cloak and it tears and a piece comes off. And he says, in the same way, the kingdom is going to be ripped from your hands. Okay. Um, in fact, some scholars might be suggesting here that just like a priestly garment has symbolism to it, uh, that a king's garment, I mean, even in Leviticus, just, just any given Jewish garment, uh, the, the hem, that's a significant part of the garment. For, for um, David to mess with this is effectively a disqualification. Okay? So maybe here he's sending a really direct signal, uh, or maybe he's just making a point that I could have taken the life uh, if I wanted to, but either way, that's all he does. And then verse six, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. Okay, notice there his reasoning. He says, God forbid that I would do this um, to, first he refers to Saul as my Lord, my ruler, and then he refers to him as the Lord's anointed. Now, like I said, that's the tension we're in tonight. That's the irony of this, is that there's a sense where Saul truly is the Lord's anointed. He was anointed by Samuel to be king, but so is David, and David was replaced or uh, anointed to take his place, but still David's conscience won't allow him to take this act. He says, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave And went on his way. And so he refuses to do so. He stops his men from doing so. And then he's going to confront Saul from a safe distance. But before he does, um, I think it's worth explaining what's going on here. Now we read all the way back in the Pentateuch that Moses was the meekest man in all the earth. But when I think of meekness and what it means, I always think of David. Um, Now, Jesus makes meekness a significantly valuable trait when he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He elevates as a a standard for those who follow him and says, this is an ideal. This is a life goal. But what does it mean to be meek? Effectively, meekness means to not take anything for yourself. That's what it means to be meek. And so when it's recorded of Moses, it's on the occasion where his brother and sister are standing up against him and denying his authority, his God-given authority, the one that came with the staff, the powerful staff that does all of these miracles, the one whose words spoke and stuff happens. 
right? They question that authority, and Moses doesn't defend himself. He falls on his face in intercession for his brother and sister. That's meekness. He doesn't defend himself. He defends those who attack him, okay? Um, Abraham demonstrates true meekness when him and his nephew Lot are butting heads because they have so much wealth between them, they're having a hard time living in close quarters. Now, remember, Abraham is not only, uh, not only the older and the patriarch of the family, so just culturally, first choice goes to him, but also he's the one with the promises. The reason they're in the promised land at all is because God has called Abraham out. Uh, Lot is just human baggage. He's just along for the ride. And it's amazing, knowing all of these promises, that Abraham says to Lot, his younger nephew, he says, look, you choose. You pick. Look around you in any direction. Whatever direction you go in, I will go in the opposite. That's meekness. Okay. Even looking at Jesus' parable, it's a significant thing. It's, it's what's, so, or uh, his beatitude, what's so profound about it is when Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth, the way we would normally read that statement is miserable are the meek because they are trampled. How is it that they get everything? And the key, of course, is, is in two things, and it's implied by that word inherit. It will be given to them. You see, David has two choices. He can take the throne, or he can allow God to give him the throne. In fact, in this case, Abraham is also a good counterexample of what this doesn't look like. Remember, God has said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you descendants. They will number the stars, and it will begin with the fact that I'm going to give you a son. And after 15 years of waiting, and an interesting suggestion from Sarah, Abraham goes, maybe what God meant was I'm supposed to give him a son. Right? And that's where Ishmael comes from. That's where this big misstep in Abraham's life is because he takes the promises of God and seeks to bring them about on his own. And we will see this to be a continuous trait of David. First, twice tonight, he's going to say, I will not take the throne for myself. And then when his own son uprises and stands against him, instead of David fighting against his son, he leaves. He walks away. He says, effectively, if God gave me the kingdom, he's capable of keeping it. He's capable of giving it back to me, and so he walks away and waits for God to work. That's meekness, and one of the reasons why we should develop this characteristic um, is, is, is because God is a better giver than we are. Okay. The best you get when you take for yourself is the cities of Sodom like Lot. The best you get when you take for yourself is Ishmael and not Isaac. And the best he could get here is the blood guilt and the question and all of the subjects who see this now as a takeover because he slew the king, just like the other kings and the other issues, right? David is supposed to be the one God sent, the one God chose, the one God called. And so he chooses a path where God can demonstrate that calling. And it's a long path, seven years on the run. And then another seven years while he only reigns over Judah and the other ten tribes want nothing to do with him. Fourteen years from his anointing until God finally comes through on his promise. Another ten years after Ishmael until God brings about Isaac. Okay? And when Jesus said, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth, that inheritance is still future tense from the day that Jesus spoke it. 
But this is the thing we can take for ourselves or we can ask God to give. And David chooses that. He asks God to give. And so verse 8, afterwards, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord the king. Now remember here, probably Saul's armies are not just right outside the cave. They're down the path a little bit, okay? And so this isn't really a threatening or a dangerous thing for David to make his presence known because he's got an entire army behind him and Saul is on his own, okay? He has the military advantage here. But he, he addresses him, and then notice how he addresses him again, my lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. He bows to Saul. When it, with his face to the earth here, sometimes means not just the obvious that every bow involves, but at least a very deep bow, or maybe even on his knees before Saul. And so verse 9, David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Now, I think we have really good reasons to believe that David knows Saul doesn't need the counsel of others to hate David. He knows where the real problem is. It's in Saul's heart. It's been there the whole time. He knows Saul well. He, you know, has been around. He sat at his table. He's watched Saul throw a spear at David. Uh, but here, he, he broadens it out and he says... Why do you believe those who speak this way to you? We'll see the same thing a little bit later. Verse 10, Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today in my hand in the cave. And, I, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Remember, that's honest. This isn't some plot or ploy. That's exactly how he feels. And basically, he just says, if I was going to take your life, I could have done it. He says, if I'm your enemy, then why are you still alive? He continues in verse 11, see my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. Okay, he addresses him there as father, which is accurate on quite a few different levels. Um, but of course here, it's a term of closeness. He's, rem he's reminding him here that he's family. He's actually Saul's son-in-law because of marriage to Saul's daughter. He says, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there's no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. And then he says, may the Lord judge between me and you. See, that's the choice there. David could be the judge, or he could allow the Lord to be the judge. He says, may the Lord judge between me and you. Verse 12 May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Now, I think that's really striking too. Here he speaks respectfully. I think you could even say lovingly, but he still recognizes the possibility of God bringing vengeance on Saul for his behavior. And he's comfortable leaving it there. He says, may the Lord avenge you. I'm not going to bring vengeance but there's a clear rebuke and a clear warning in David's words. Verse 13, as the proverb of the ancient says, says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. He says that his inactivity demonstrates his innocence. He says, if I had wicked plans, I would have done wickedly, but I spared you because I'm innocent. 
Verse 14, after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? A dead dog? After a flea? He speaks very lowly of himself there, but he's also probably presenting a soft rebuke. What is the king of Israel, who has a job to do, doing chasing David around the wilderness? He's just a dead dog. There's no threat in a dead dog. He's just a flea. There's no danger there. It's far from the enemies of Israel. And then he says in verse 15, May therefore the Lord be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. I love that sentence in particular because if you set it up like a court scene, he puts every role in God's hands. God is his legal counsel. God is the judge. God is the jury. God is the executioner. Right? They're all left in God's hands Even the pleading of his cause, he leaves to the Lord. Verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, David, my son? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Apparently, Saul is very touched by this. And it doesn't read like he's just uh, realized how much danger he was in. And he's crying because of that. He, He feels some sort of remorse here. And he said to David, verse 17, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you declared this day how you dealt dealt well with me and that you did not kill me where the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? And so basically he repeats and agrees with David here. He's like, you're right. If you were my enemy, then why would you have done this? And he said, I have been your enemy. I've been chasing you to kill me and you've repaid me with the good of sparing my life. Verse 20, and now behold, I know, listen to this, now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. He says, I know what your destiny is. I know what God's going to do and I can see it for myself. And then he asks for a promise, verse 21, swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. It was pretty standard practice in the ancient world that if you were going to become a new dynasty, the old dynasty was a threat. And not just the king who may have died or who you may have beat out in some sort of war or may even had assassinated, but also uh, the assassinee's children and children's children, right? You eradicated the line so that there was no rival to the throne. And so Saul says, don't be that way. Promise me that you will spare my children and my family. And it's worth pointing out, one, David's already made this promise to Jonathan. Two, he keeps it. And so we'll see that one of Saul's Saul's grandchildren, Jonathan's son Mephibosheth, will come and live in David's palace all of his days. And David swore this to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Now notice there, David doesn't just dust off and go home, lay everything aside and say, hey, you know, is my bedroom in the palace still available? He doesn't even go back to Bethlehem or to Judah. He goes to a stronghold, okay? He wants the best for Saul. But that doesn't mean that he trusts Saul. In fact, we're going to see later tonight that he doesn't entrust himself to Saul even though Saul entrusts himself to David. And I think there's some significant truths there. But notice how Saul responds when he says, you have done good in response to my evil. 
Now, Paul calls us to the same thing in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 12, This is what he says in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Then listen to this, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now we see a lot of what we just read in David's behavior, but I also want you to notice the importance of that Um, outcome statement in verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The idea there is not just speaking of don't let, don't let your enemies win. When it says don't be overcome by evil, it means don't become evil yourself. Okay. But it recognizes the potential, the possibility of overcoming evil with good, of turning the tide. Even when it says when we do good works for those who hate us, we heap burning coals on their head, at the very least, that's an expression of sorrow and repentance. It may even be a significant act of, of, um, of positive giving. Uh, the suggestion, if I remember right, is, is that, um, that you're contributing to the hearth of their home with the coals of your own. So you're not dumping naked coals on somebody's bare forehead, but you're putting a pot full of hot coals on their head to take home with them. It's a stretch. But it clearly talks about the potential, the possibility of remorse. And if we want to understand this, we don't have to look any farther than the cross of Jesus Christ. While we were the enemies of God, Christ died for us. And it's the kindness of God, that kindness of God, that leads us to repentance. And so effectively, Paul says, just be like Jesus. And Now, granted, David is no Jesus. He's going to fall short, but he, like I said, is a prototype of these things, and it's ultimately expressed in the fact that he asks God to be the judge, to be the giver, to be the king in his life. In chapter 25, now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. The author is telling a different story, so that's it. Just one little footnote here, that it's during this time that Samuel dies, tells us where he's buried, and oddly it says that he's buried in his house at Ramah. Um, But nonetheless, continuing on, then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich and had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. Now it's worth knowing in, in this telling here that Nabal's name is not really a great name, okay? It means foolish. 
And it may be here that his name has been slightly changed like a homonym, like his name wasn't actually foolish, but that's what he's known as now and we'll see why. Um, or it may just be that he's one of those people who had just the right horrible name. Um, but as we'll see, he lives up to it. Um, and then there's his wife, Abigail. The woman, unlike her foolish husband, was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. And he was a Calebite. Okay, so once again, a descendant of Caleb, a Kenite who had settled with the people of Israel. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him, peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing in all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give us whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. Okay, first, remember here we're talking about a Middle Eastern culture, which means hospitality reigns. Even if David was just passing through and knocked on a door and asked for help, the standard bare minimum behavior is hospitality. But David doesn't do that. He says, hey, we've been traveling with your shepherds for, day, for days and we've been providing them protection. Now, if you're not careful, this reads like, uh, like the mafia, right? Like, you know, Nabal, it'd really be a shame if something happened to your sheep. Uh, and we're gonna actually see that because of Nabal's foolish response, things almost go that way. But we'll see that when the servants give the report, this is actually a good thing. They say, David's men were like a wall to us, okay? Shepherding is dangerous. It involves a lot of uh, exposure to uh, dangerous wildlife, to raiders, to all of these things. Remember, this is not well-established Israel. There's still enemies who make a habit to raid, and sheep shearing is a good time to raid. There's a lot of things going on in this story, but David is traveling with his men, and he's in need. He knows that Nabal has more than to spare, and he's been taking care of these, and so he sends his messengers to just send this report. Okay. And so, verse 9, when David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants. Even when it says there, and then they waited, they probably never saw Nabal face to face. Once again, it's so different than Eastern hospitality. Go back and read Genesis 18, when three random people walk by Abraham's tent and he starts running around like crazy to prepare a feast for them. Nabal doesn't even see his guests. And so they wait for an answer in verse 10, Nabal answered David's servants, who's David? Who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. He says, the only thing I know about David is that he's no longer working for Saul, and that's enough for me. Verse 11, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shears and give it to the men who come from I do not know where? Now notice there, he sees everything he owns as what? As his. My meat, my water, my workers. Okay. But he also says, I don't know your men. I don't know where they come from. In other words, basically, he says no. Okay, verse 12. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. 
okay, I don't know how big Nabal's operation is. I don't know, based on the amount of animals that we read here, how many people it would take to run this. But 400 soldiers is a lot, okay? Uh, David is going to deal with this, and he's going to deal with it violently. This is the same David who a page earlier, right, would not slay the Lord's anointed, and now here's one of his future subjects, and he's disrespected, and he just loses his mind. You see, one of the things that we have to recognize about David, even here, is that he needs help, okay? That he's totally capable of blowing it. And what he's about to do here is really serious. The chapter here labels it as blood guilt, okay? Now, ironically, that's going to become part of David's story. He'll be spared from this here, but eventually when he kills Uriah on the front line, that's exactly what he gets. He gets blood guilt. Okay, blood on his hands um, that is undeserved. Um, if anything, we read this story and we'd expect it to say this was something that happened to Saul. But notice what happens here. And so they're marching on the way to Nabal's house. Verse 14, we get a ch- scene change. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when they were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore, know this, and consider what you should do, for harm is determined against our master and against his house, and such is a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Okay, and so here they go, you know how Nabal is. This is what he's done. And they say, inevitably, this has put us in danger. And then finally they say, there's no point in talking to him, right? You know uh, that he's such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. There's no going, hey, do you understand where you've just put us in? Do you understand what's about to happen? You really need to go on your hands and knees and apologize. The servant just lays it before this woman, Abigail. And so verse 18, Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs. Remember, this is during the sheep shearing festival. So there's a lot of prepared food around. It's all ready for this big festival. Uh, As we'll see, Nabal plans on eating like a king. And so she takes what she can carry. She rushes in doing it. Parched grain, 100 clusters of raisin, 200 cakes of figs, laid them on donkeys. And she said to the young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down towards her, and she met them. Okay, so they're on the road, sword in hand, and she's on the road, and she brings all these gifts, and here they meet um, in the middle. In verse 21, now David said, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. And so here, notice the tension there. He's making a vow here, but when he says God do so to the enemies of David, David's about to do so to the enemies of David. And he says, I'm not going to leave a single man standing. That's the agenda here. That's where his mind is. That's where his heart is. But when Abigail saw David, verse 23, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. 
Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Okay, notice right here what she doesn't do. She doesn't go, Nabal is an ass. Please spare us. She takes the collective guilt. Remember, she's her husband. She probably knows the type of man she is. We've already seen the servants know that they can play that card and say, you know how Nabal is, right? She knows these things, but she doesn't throw them under the bus either. She comes and she recognizes that this guilt uh, is shared and she lays it out. She identifies herself as David's servant. Uh, verse 25, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal for his name is, so he is. He's, he's perfectly named, she says. Nabal is his name and folly is with him, but I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. She said, I, I, didn't, I didn't see them. I didn't regard them. I didn't have a chance to respond. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving you with his own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. Now notice how solid that rhetoric is. She speaks as if David has already given up the cause. In other words, she recognizes herself for what it, what it is, an opportunity for David to not do the wrong thing. She sees herself as a representative of God himself who's sparing David from the danger that he's in. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that no temptation has come upon us except that which is common to man. And that God is faithful in that he will always provide a way of escape so that we will be able to endure it. Remember here, David needs a way of escape. He needs help to do the right thing. And that help comes in a wise and beautiful woman named Abigail. And she knows it. She knows that this is an opportunity for David to regain his cool and avoid doing this horrible thing. And so, verse 27, and now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you shall live. Now that's really striking too. She seems to have such a significant handle on what a king is supposed to be, and that, and that David is destined for it. And so she basically says here, I know what God has for you. And uh, when she says evil will not be found in you so long as you live, that's not because of David, right? That's because of God's assistance. Verse 29, if men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God and the lives of your enemy he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling, Okay. And he says, you're going to be protected as God pulls you close and your enemies are going to be cast away. Okay. Now, this is, this is David's truths. He knows these things. He lives by these things and she reminds them of, of them here. But the danger here, once again, is not that God hasn't promised to take care of the enemies of David. He will do so. The danger here is that David is going to take care of the enemies of David. And so she lays all of this out. In verse 30, when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause for my Lord. She says, if you do this, you'll regret it. Uh, uh, shed blood without cause or for my Lord taking vengeance himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my servant, remember your servant. Now, remember there doesn't just mean 
remember my name or something like that. It means act on my behalf, okay? She basically recognizes the value of the favor she's doing from David and asks that she would be treated favorably, favorably as well. Verse 32, David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Now, we're gonna see, he, he's deeply impressed with Abigail, but he also sees this for what it is, God's provided way of escape. And he praises God for being so gracious to him. Verse 33, blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who's restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly in mourning there would not have been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she'd brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I've obeyed your voice and I've granted your petition. And Abigail, Abigail came to Nabal. And behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king, Nabal style, right? He's enjoying everything he has and he's at the center of the table and the enjoyment. And his, Nabal's heart was merry within him for he was drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things and his heart died within him and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Okay, and so notice a few things here. First, when he hears about this, it says that his heart died within him. It may be that what we're talking about here is a stroke and that he's in a semi-catatonic state for a week and a half and then he passes away. Or it may be that he just realizes how close he just came to death and he's pretty shaken up by it and then 10 days later, God takes his life. Either way, notice here that God does what he said he would do for David. David stays out of the path and God brings justice on Nabal because he deserves it because of his broad wickedness. Now, remember, in this day and age, this puts Abigail in a position. In fact, it may be, and I think this is a sticky suggestion because uh, being a Calebite probably denies this, but it may be uh, that what happens next is, is like a kinsman redeemer thing that David takes Abigail as a wife uh, because as we're going to find out, she has no kids with Nabal. Uh, and the son that she does raise with David, he doesn't seem to be in line for the throne. He's not mentioned in, in that whole thing. And so maybe he's raised on Nabal's behalf as according to the Leveret law from the book of Exodus. I think that's a stretch. Uh, but, but he has concern for Abigail who is now a widow which is a very difficult thing in the ancient world. And so, verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, blessed be the Lord as who avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as a wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Caramel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take him as a wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And so she, she is who she is, true and true. Respect and gratitude and all these things. And so David sends, she accepts the proposal. Verse 42, Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Now notice the notes that are added in verse 43. 
David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Now, actually, based on later chronology, this is probably a woman that he's taken as a wife before Abigail. And then maybe if you're a close reader and you've been paying attention, you go, but what about Saul's daughter-in-law? And that's when we find out what happens next. Verse 44, Saul had given Michal, his daughter, to David's wife, to Petili, the son of Laish, who was of Galen. So remember, she lets him down, uh, and David escapes and never returns, and so Saul just marries her off to someone else, okay? And so that wife is gone. It looks like what happens is he takes another wife out along the road, and then he also takes Abigail as a second wife. Um, The Bible often records polygamy, but it never endorses it. In fact, it operates in tremendous restraint uh, in, in, um, against it, and every, every single time we encounter it in the Bible, it's a negative example. And we're going to see that this trait of David gathering wives here is not going to work out well for him. Okay. Um, but we can say that he knows how to pick them. Abigail clearly here is a respectable um, and uh, idealized woman. I think it's worth pointing out one more thing here. In the New Testament, it says that women are to submit to their husbands. But notice, even though Abigail is held out as an example here, there's one place where she doesn't submit to Nabal, which is to his foolishness and his wickedness. Okay, She does something about it. And what she does is incredibly gracious towards Nabal. It's on his behalf. She owns up to the guilt, all of these things. Um, but it's very different than what happens in the book of Acts. Okay? There is one woman we see submitting to her husband in sin, and it doesn't go well for her. Her name is Sapphira. Okay? Her and her husband sell off some of their property. And instead of being honest that they're only going to give some of it to the church, they walk in boldly, first Ananias, and he says, we sold everything Here it is, here's all of it, the lump sum. And it's that lie, that hypocritical lie of posing to be thought of better than he actually is. And Peter speaks to him and he drops dead. And then Sapphira comes in and Peter says, hey, your husband dropped by earlier, did you really, is this really the whole price for the property? And she agrees with her husband and she drops down, drops dead as well, okay. And so I think here, there are places to be pondered to think through who Abigail is as a righteous example of a good wife. Okay, I want to do chapter 26, so let's keep moving. Verse 1, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself in the hill of Hakala, which is on the east of Jeshimon? Now, does this sound familiar? Okay, we've seen this before. In fact, there's going to be a lot parallel in this chapter. Verse 2, so Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road in the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him in the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, where Abner the son of Ner was commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Okay, so get the picture here. Picture David up on a hillside. It's after dark and he's looking down in the valley and there's 3,000 men. All of the armies of Saul are around him and in the very middle of the camp is Saul asleep next to Abner, his, his first in command. Okay. 
Verse 6, Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai the son of Zariah, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping with the encampment, with a spear stuck in the ground at his head. And so notice here, he sneaks into the middle of the camp uh, at night, just him and one other person. Okay. Um, now, once again, I think this smells distinctly of God's sovereignty. It doesn't say here that God put a dip, deep sleep on, uh, on Saul's army, but it didn't say that he, uh, he had brought him into that cave in particular. It didn't say that he had caused the Philistines to attack. Nonetheless here, God is orchestrating and moving things, and so it's amazing here, both the courage of David and then the reality that he's standing in the midst of a 3,000-plus camp of military men next to his enemy, and then notice it says that his spear... Uh, was stuck in the ground at his head, okay? That's probably just a, a self-defense measure. Imagine you're sleeping outside and you're suddenly under attack and you're trying to find a spear, okay? Laying next to you is gonna be awkward and difficult. Stuck right next to your head, you just, you know, it's right there, okay? Uh, what's interesting is, think of this psychology of David standing here. Saul has a thing for this spear, it's always by him. It's by him at the dinner table, right? And on multiple occasions, he has thrown it at David. And so he's sitting here, and here's the spear that has been often aimed at him, sitting right next to the head of his enemy, and then he gets the offer of a lifetime. David says, I will not slay the Lord's anointed, and Abishai says, I will. <laughs> Notice what he says. Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I will not strike him twice. He says, you know I won't miss. You know. But notice, once again, Abishai is convinced this is God's will for David. But David doesn't allow the name of God to be used in something that he knows is wrong. And so verse... Uh, verse 9, David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. This is what he's waiting on. He says, he can have a heart attack, or he can die of old age, or he can die on the front lines of battle. All of that he recognizes is significantly stuff David can't do. And that's what makes it the way it has to happen. Okay. And so he continues here, verse 11, The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So they steal the spear in the jar, verse 12. David took the spear in the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because, told you, a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. I think a really important way to read what's going on throughout this whole history is reading it as God's faithful witness to Saul. Saul has his whole adult life to turn away. And this is another opportunity to do so. David isn't just, or excuse me, God doesn't just restrain David's hand by the sending of Abigail. He constantly restrains Saul from killing David and simultaneously provides these opportunities in David's own mouth to repent. 
And so here he's got the spear, he's got the water, he sneaks out of the camp. Verse 13, David went over to the other side and stood far off on top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and Abner, the son of Ner, saying, will you not answer Abner? Then Abner answered, who are you who calls the king? And David said to Abner, are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord, and this thing you've done is not good. He criticizes him here. He says, your whole job is to protect Saul, and you just slept right through it. How can you call yourself a great man in Israel? Verse 16, this thing you've done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you've not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear and the jar of water was that was at his head. You know, he holds them up so they can all see. And Saul recognized David's voice and said, is that your voice, my son David? And David said, it is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Once again, he challenges him. He says, present the evidence. Show me where I've done wrong. Verse 19, now therefore let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it's men, may they be cursed before the lord. And basically, he says, if I've done anything wrong, and if you can show it, if, I, if God has something against me, there's an app for that. I'll offer a sacrifice. I'm ready to repent, he basically says. And he says, but if it's men who, I've, I'm innocent, and it's just men trying to bring about death. And remember here, it's not men, it's man, it's Saul. Let them be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. What is he recognizing here? He's recognizing that being squeezed out of the life and the land of Israel, he's being squeezed out of the worship of God, the worship that God is rightly owed. And he puts this firmly at the feet of Saul. And he says, this is your fault. Okay, verse 20, now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. And Saul said, and notice, notice what Saul says here. There's a progressiveness in Saul's words. Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I've acted foolishly, and I've made a great mistake. Okay, he speaks of all of his behavior, and he says it's a terrible thing, it's a foolish thing, and it's a sinful thing. And he says, it's over. I'm not going to come after you anymore. David answered verse 22 and said, here is the spear, O king, let one of the young men come over and take it. He says, send one of your youngest soldiers over and I'll give him back your spear. Verse 23, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today and I would not put, you out, put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Do you see what he says there? You would expect reciprocity. He would say, just as I've delivered you today, so also you should deliver me. That's not what he says. He says, just as I've delivered you today, so also the Lord will deliver me. That's where his trust is. That's where he places it. In verse 25, Saul said to David, blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his palace. Now, this is the last time David and Saul will meet. Okay. 
But also it's worth pointing out that what happens next is David leaves the land of Israel. Okay? Once again, he doesn't return to life as normal. Saul often has words, but repentance is significantly more than words. And so David knows at this point that there's no safety in the land of Israel, and he basically leaves and waits for Saul to die. Um, I think the reason why that is sad is not because David has given up hope on Saul. It's because Saul has lost another voice. First it was Samuel, remember? Samuel in the days of Saul, and there's this confrontation, and then Saul goes home, Samuel goes home, and Samuel never sees him again. He's cut off from the voice of the Lord. Here, David is operating and effectively, and not just effectively, but very uh, persuasively calling Saul to repentance. And now that voice is gone. And effectively, we're going to see Saul from this point on is just left to his own devices. Um... I know I quote it all the time. But realize here that Saul lives on the throne for many years to come. And here's the quote. George MacDonald says, if anyone does anything apart from God, he must either fail miserably or succeed more miserably. And Saul succeeds more miserably. His enemy is out of the land. He's left to his own to just sit on his throne. Uh, and as we'll see, it doesn't, it doesn't go well for him. Proverbs talks about the fool who doesn't heed the rebuke of a friend. And that's Saul. Let's pray. God, you've given us two tremendous examples tonight, three if we count Abigail. But with David and Saul, we have a good example and a bad example. One who seeks his own will to his own harm, who labels his desires as the desire of God, who no longer inquires and instead just speaks for God, and David who will not slay the Lord's anointed who expects God to fulfill his promises and his timing and waits, who expects God to deliver him and waits, who expects God to vindicate him and even bring judgment upon his enemies and waits. I pray, Lord, that you would cultivate in us that meekness, Lord. And we thank you, God, that that's who you are. It's mind-blowing that the God of the universe, our own creator, can take on flesh in Jesus Christ and say, come to me for I am meek. You're not the God who takes, but the God who gives. Freely and fully and willingly on the cross, offering us everything we don't deserve, taking everything we do deserve, and giving us life the cost of your own life. And for all of us, Lord, that marks you as being faithful and worthy of trusting. 
Like Paul says in the book of Romans, if God did not spare his own son, how will he not freely give us all things? That's why the martyrs under the throne, those who have died and their blood has been shed for Jesus, they don't say, will you bring justice, Lord? They just say, how long? And I pray, Lord, that we'd be in the same place, that we would know that your promises are tied to your timing, but they're also tied to your character, so they're faithful and true. Teach us these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.